right. Um, Adam, if there's any water bottles back there, could you bring me one, please? Thank you. Sorry about that, um, that intro at the beginning of the song. We were still listening to another one, um, and then I got confused. So, Also, I've already sworn to ban the secrecy, but can nobody please tell my brother that I played a solo with my fingers? That would be awesome. <laughs> uh, I am a bass player. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Got a few announcements today um, before we get rolling. And I'm missing a different one later. All right. A um, few announcements. Tonight is our last class on uh, the Trinity um, with Dr. Bruce Ware. So if you are signed up for that, um, please make sure that you are at First Baptist Huber Heights at 5 o'clock. Um, yes, that's half an hour early. I want to make sure that we're seated together, that we're ready um, to listen and learn, and that we are able to mingle with the First Baptist people um, and thank them for letting us participate with them. Um, child care is still at the same location, so just make sure that you're there in time in order to be able to be at First Baptist Huber uh, at 5 o'clock. We are doing a movie night, a kids' night out with Jim Quest um, on March 2nd. If you have any questions about that um, or you would like to be involved, please talk to Tiffany. She has all the information for that. Um, we'll be collecting Haiti Love medical supplies ongoing. I'm not going to be talking about that much more. Um, in the future, I'm excited to announce a couple different things. Um, we have a parenting seminar coming up at the end of March. Uh, it'll be the weekend before Secret Church. So we're very carefully scheduling stuff to occupy all of your weekends um, in the spring. Um, it, it'll be kind of a lot all at once, and then we'll have the summer um, to relax a little bit. But this is uh, at First Baptist um, Troy, uh, so we're going up north. Uh, it's $25 for a couple. I highly encourage you guys to do that. If you are single, you can still come. Um, I encourage you to. This will be valuable. You can put it on your shelf and pull it out in however many years. Um, there's a lot of stuff I have from school that I'm pulling out now. I'm getting ready for April. Um, the child care, I want to make a note on that. It's $5 per child up to three kids. Once you hit three kids, it's a $15 max. So that is only applies to our church because we have large families. Um, so if you're bringing your entire clan, it's only 15 bucks for child care. If you only have the one, it is 5 bucks a piece. Um, for, so that and Secret Church, you can both register on the website starting tomorrow. Um, I'll have that launched up there. I want to encourage you guys to start signing up for these things as they come. So with that, let us talk about Hosea. Um, I hope in your Bible studies, in your home gatherings, um, or even in your weekly study, you've been trying to identify with Gomer. So something I've been pushing a lot is how do we put ourselves in the story? How do we not just read this for what it is? How do we understand that we are Israel? We are Gomer. How many of you have a good idea of what makes you Gomer? Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> I need to spend more time on this on Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> um, I really want, before we finish this today um, and, and even this week, for us to be able to say, this is what makes me Israel. This is the sin that, uh, that I am running from God with. This is the idol in my life that I am worshiping rather than him. This is who I um, this is what I am worshiping rather than Yahweh. So yes, let, we need to work on that. That is a huge theme of Hosea. Okay? As we read Old Testament, we can't just read the stories for stories. 
So how, how do I now apply David and Goliath to my life? It's a cool story, but how do I bring it over uh, the culture river into my culture and apply it in my life? We have to be able to read these stories and say, this is what makes me part of this. This is how God is speaking to me. Does that make sense? Otherwise, we're just going to read stories for stories, and it's going to be a cute little narrative. And it's going to be like every other religion in the world that just has good proverbs, and we never apply it to our lives. Okay? So with that, um, we've talked about the main story that occurs in Hosea. Um, and by story, I mean kind of the, the narrative that we had uh, for the first three chapters. So that is a third of the book. And we are getting ready to go through quite a lot. If you guys have your notes, you can see um, we're going to be flying through this. We're going to skip some of it, not because it's not important, but because I want to focus on some specific themes um, for our time in Hosea. Uh, it's all typed out for you, so you don't have to worry about trying to scribble down stuff real fast. Uh, you should be able to keep up, and we can move through this. So we've gone through a third of the book already, right? The story of Hosea, we've looked at how Hosea had to go find an Israelite woman who would be uh, in promiscuity, wantonness, harlotry, whatever version you have. She's living that life. We have children enter the scene, Jezreel, the Ruhamah, and Loami. So Jezreel being um, the ending of the dynasty of Jehu, um, really bringing to close the northern kingdom of Israel. Later we see the word Ephraim a lot. That's going to be something that comes up today. Uh, then we have Loruhamah, so no pity, or not pitied, um, or no compassion. God has no compassion on his people. And then we have Loami, not my people. So God disowns the people of Israel as his own. Uh, but later then we see what? Restoration, right? Uh, we see God first restoring Israel. And then in chapter 3 we see Hosea redeeming Gomer. So with that we get to go into something um, that should be familiar by now. More judgment, right? <laughs> we have this cycle of judgment and restoration, judgment and restoration. And what I don't want you to think is that God is bipolar, okay? He's not going from manic to depressive. It's not, I hate you, I love you. It's not picking a flower, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. It's not the kind of attitude that we see. What you need to see in this, and I hope I've communicated already, but what I, I definitely think we can see today is the struggle that Yahweh is having with his people. The struggle internally uh, with his emotions. Now I'm being a little liberal in my <laughs> speaking of God's emotions. Um, he is impassable. Um, he is immutable. So he does not change. Um, God is, and there's nothing that we can add to him, and there's nothing that he's reacting to. But from our vantage point, which is what we're getting from Hosea, God is struggling just as a husband struggles in his emotions with a wife who is being disobedient, disrespectful, um, or just downright hurting, on purpose, um, her husband. So what we're seeing is a God, as a husband, grieving for and, and sorrowful over his, his wife. Um, so with that, let us hop into this, all right? So we have in chapter 4, 1 through 11, 11, uh, the second main bulk. Yes, we're on week 3 and we're starting in the second section. The second main bulk of, of Hosea. And so this is Hosea's message, part one. We went from the story to now Hosea's actual 
message to the people. Before, it was kind of, not an allegory, but a side-by-side parallel example of Hosea and Gomer with Yahweh and Israel. Now we move from that to actually some of the prophecy um, that is just a direct message from Yahweh, Hosea, okay? So part one of Hosea's message is first the introduction. We have a general indictment of the nation. So in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, we see that what he's talking about is directed to the present sins of the people, not the future rescue. Having just come from chapter 3 of a future rescue and a restoration, we hop back into some judgment. And there's a reason. Before any future hope can come, the present has to be dealt with. We cannot always look forward to the day of glory while neglecting to deal with the sins of today. So in Romans chapter 6, when Paul says, should we sin uh, more so that grace may increase? By no means. The grace we have is covered all of our sins. It's not like the pile gets bigger when we sin more and we get more grace. So right now we have to deal with what we've done in order for the day of glory to come. And that's part of the perseverance of the saints. You will If you are elect and you are called by God and redeemed by him, you will, by necessity, finish the race. Now, we're going to find today that that can happen one of two ways. But we cannot just jump to the future glory and hope of repentance without dealing with the present sins. So right now, we we jump back in chapter 4 into the present sins of the people and not the future rescue. So we see Yahweh describing his people. He calls them no faithfulness. It's a lack of truth-telling and truth-doing which result in instability, infidelity, and unreliability. So it's no surprise that he calls his people of no faithfulness because that's been what they've done all along. It's what we've seen in Hosea is that they are not faithful. They are not uh, telling the truth to people. They're being deceitful, and it results in instability, infidelity, and unreliability. You have a nation that is falling apart because they rely on their warfare and their hands, and they rely on the fertility of the bales in order to provide their needs. He calls them no kindness, a lack of concern for needy neighbors, appropriate response to Yahweh's steadfast love. Kindness would be an appropriate response to Yahweh's steadfast love. So if you have a spouse who's consistently showing love and the other spouse is rude back, cuts them off, that's not an appropriate response to showings of love, right? He says that They are full of no kindness. No knowledge of God. It sums up the entire theme of the covenant revelation of who God is, what he has done, and what he requires of them. In your home gathering last week, you should have talked about the five aspects of the covenant. So if we're going to know God, as he says that we have forgotten him, but he will allow us to know him again, what is required on our part in order to maintain or bring to the table what we are supposed to in this covenant? We're just to bring righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and compassion. God does those things in a perfect way. We cannot add anything to God, so we're not going to be able to be righteous to him. So how do we reciprocate that? We should be able to do that to the the body, to the, the church that we have now. We bring those five aspects of the covenant to each other, allowing God to fill us in order to do that. So no knowledge of God would sum up the fact that there is lacking of those five things. There's no understanding or consistent living in the covenant that he has established. And ultimately he ends it with, in the land uh, that I gave you. It should be literally understood as you should know better. 
I brought you into this land. I gave it to you. I provided it for you. I'm the one who said march around uh, the J one. What's the big one? Jericho. Jericho. I'm the one that said march around Jericho and the walls will fall down. Really, the walls will fall down. I'm the one who said that you should know better. You have seen me work in your life. You have seen my faithfulness. You have seen the things that I bring to you. You should know better. I think we're all in a position where we can say that today about ourselves. We should know better. So what is it that keeps us from living in that knowledge? In verse 2, we can uh, we look at that. And the thing is, is if virtues are lacking, so there's, there's no faithfulness, there's no kindness, there's no knowledge of God, if those virtues are lacking, then vices must be present. And what's interesting is Hosea goes on to express them verbatim from Israel's law codes. So the first thing is swearing. You see that he's, he mentions swearing. And this breaks the commands against unworthy use of the, the divine name. So God, I am, Yahweh, Elohim. It breaks the commands against unworthy use of that name by damning others and attaching Yahweh's name to the curse. So you are presuming upon yourself, or they are presuming upon themselves, that they can use God's name to damn people and curse them. Lying, it violates the personal and legal rights of others, especially in bearing false witness. Killing, it's murder, it's taking of human life without due process of law. Stealing, originally implied as kidnapping, but it was later expanded to include crimes of appropriating the valuable possessions of one another. So it was originally stealing, but it moves on to be just anything. Finally, committing adultery. It kind of caps the list as the expression of what they've done, right? We look at Gomer, what was her main thing? Infidelity, both emotional and physical. So it's interesting, at the end of that, he says, they break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Sounds exciting, right? Why am I using this as my introduction? Um, it's most likely understood as connoting lavish or wanton bloodshed. How? How? Who are they killing? You said killing earlier. Who are they killing? It's specifically the activity of armed troops breaking into households to seize victims for the human sacrifices that fed the altars of Baal. That suits the context, and it prepares us for the indictments against the priests that dominate our next section. So he says they break all bounds. It's like wanton. It's, it's willing. It's so far beyond what normal would be. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. Verse 3, Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So these sins, these, these, these vices that are present, swearing, lying, killing, stealing, committing adultery, the wanton bloodshed, all of these things demand a commensurate judgment. So just as the whole earth is supposed to be blessed by Israel, right? the original Abrahamic covenant was that the entire earth would be blessed by the spreading of his people, right? And indeed we have been, because now we've been included, right? So there has been blessing because of Abraham's faith and the covenant that Yahweh began with him. So just as the whole earth is to be blessed by Israel, we see now in verse 3 that just by just the same Israel will curse the entire world. 
And so when you're dealing with the fertility gods of the Baals, what would be probably a fitting uh, punishment? The opposite of fertility, barrenness. So drought, drought comes upon the land. It says, all who dwell in it languish or wither away, literally. We're talking about complete devastation. A couple commentators that I was reading as I was studying for this mentioned that this, this judgment right here would outstrip the flood. At least in the flood, there was two of every animal saved. We're talking about in this entire region, everything withering away. So if you want to put my, speaking as God, my provision, my um, deliverance onto a, another God and call that fertility, that my provider, that my comforter? What happens when I, the one who do it, remove it? So it's not looking too hot for Israel. So we move into B on your notes, the covenant shattered. Still in chapter 4 and moving into chapter 5. You see first the rejected law. Um, as we run through this section and the next one, B and C, I just want to point out a couple specific verses, a couple specific instances, um, and then we're going to skip a little bit more towards the end of part two um, and spend most of our time in chapter 14. So pointing out a few things in here, we first see the rejected law. And what's interesting about this section is he says, yet lo- let, <laughs> let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O what? Priest. O priest. So we see Hosea place firmly the blame on the shoulders of the priests. Now there's two sections of judgment speeches in 4.4 through 10. The first is an indictment of failure to keep the law. So their first failure is to actually keep the law, right? That makes sense. They, They broke the law. So what is the punishment? This is talking to the priests. The punishment is rejection of their priestly status. So if you, a priest, cannot keep the law, you should not be a priest, right? Ta-da. Number two, an indictment of hedonistic greed in the celebration of the cult. The priests were taking hedonistic pleasures or greed in the celebration of the cult. The punishment then accordingly is deprivation of any source of joy. So you're finding joy in things that are not me. I am is supposed to be the one who brings about meaning joy in your source in that and you're not finding it in me you're not going to find anything what's interesting is it seems like it seems like it would be a harsh taking away we saw some language in chapter two of like stripping away pulling it away just absolutely violently removing um, pleasure joy comfort we it looked very harsh in those things what's interesting is if you think about really what's going on here it's not God taking away anything. They think that they're finding pleasure in their raisin cakes, in the, their worship of the bales. What happens when you remove the presence of God? One of the definitions of hell is absence of the presence of God. So to be in a place that you are removed from the presence of God. Now God is omnipresent, so technically he is present in hell, but we cannot experience that relationship. So even the common grace that maintains our current world, for those who are lost and those who are saved, that being removed is a removal of joy. So 
So it doesn't have to be Yahweh stripping away anything except simply removing his presence. You don't want my hand on your life, so be it. You will not find joy anywhere. And what's interesting is this first, this first jab, this first punch of this large section of judgment happens to be against the leadership. So let me encourage you guys to pray for your leadership. All right? We see later in the New Testament that not many of us should aspire to be teachers because we will be held more, our, our standard is, is higher. We will be held accountable to a higher degree because of what we teach. We see here, they were removed from this position because they failed to keep the law and they failed to teach the people. And what good is a priest who cannot teach? The second thing we see is the corrupted religion. So a series of accusations um, come out here, but it contains no direct threats of punishment. Every other threat has had a fitting punishment. Now we see a bunch of accusations, but no punishment. Rather, we see that the dire results are depicted as inevitable consequences of their foolish acts. So similar to God not having to strip away anything in order to remove joy, he doesn't have to punish them because the consequences are already dire enough. So because of their actions, they have to suffer the same consequences. So the consequences that come along um, happen in a few things. So first, their lust for the cult is symbolized by its new wine. And it robs them of understanding. So their sin, their um, foolishness, is a lust for the Baals, this cult of Baal. And it's symbolized by the new wine. And what does that rob them of? Understanding. The second thing is that their idolatries at the shaded shrines brought evil consequences. Therefore, that their children act immorally. The children follow the parents. We see that now <laughs> that's why we're doing a parenting seminar the foolishness is them living in evil and shocker their children do the same thing number three a person who lacks insight can come to ruin on their own without outside intervention so they're coming to ruin on their own and number four the worship itself will be a source of shame for those who worship things other than God, it will be a source of shame. Maybe not now, but one day. When every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, we'll see one day when we worship science, when we worship Buddha, when we worship self, that they are foolish and they are shameful. Finally, number three, the culpable leadership. In chapter 5, 1 through 7, we see um, a... Um, calling on the carpet of the leadership. And this is, includes the priests, but also the royalty. So we've seen, just in these three sections, like we talked about last week, the prophet, that there's three audiences. He's not just sitting in his room, writing this down and saying, good luck, world, I guess I should probably tell you. Um, he's speaking to three different groups. He's speaking to the priests, to the people of Israel, and then the royalty. So here we see the culpable leadership. And there's crimes that he, he lists out. And these go from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5. But eight big crimes that are happening. Why am I listening to these? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm trying to do two things right now. Teach you, Hosea. Uh, give you something to, to rest on. That's why you have this huge page of notes and an outline just so you can, for your resources. Uh, but I think it's incredibly important to identify sin. 
If we can't identify sin, we're missing out on opportunities to sanctify. Okay? So eight big crimes. The first one, failure to teach the law. It's the priests. Use of the cult to feed their own appetites. The priests. Practice of forms of divination. The people. Offering of sacrifices at the high places. The people. Number five, participation in ritual orgies of sex. The people. Number six, encouragement of drunken lewdness and connection with idol worship. The people. A false trust in the sacrifices at the shrines. The leaders. And finally, the bearing of bastard children as the fruit of the pagan orgies. There's crimes that that Hosea brings to bear, Yahweh brings to bear against the people of Israel to show them their sin. What's the point of the law? To show us our sin. It shows us our need for a Savior as we look forward. So the crimes here are listed out, and there's no denying them. So what do we do with them? Well, it doesn't just start with, I'm sorry, it doesn't just stop with a covenant. So the covenant is primary. That's why it's listed first. But then we run into, into politics. We'll look at politics real quick. So you have folly and greed and foreign affairs on your notes. Number two, a song of feeble penitence. So they're trying to be penitent, but it's, it's half-hearted. It's not, um, it's not in any way uh, authentic. Number three, a divine complaint of fickleness. So God's complaining that they're, they're wishy-washy. An illustration of covenant infidelity, a further declaration of how you have not been in keeping with the covenant, a divine complaint of deceitfulness. So Yahweh saying, why are you intending to deceive? And that's a big problem with lying, is it's not just the fact that you're withholding information, it's that your intent in your heart is to deceive, to, to be um, deception is what we're talking about in that instance. Number six, a judgment simile of the heated oven, a judgment metaphor of inedible bread, a judgment simile of senseless dove. I think you start to see some more of his poetry and patterns even just in the outline. And number nine, a a double divine complaint of rebellion. And so we have fresh evidence of, of just even the politics side. So Israel and Judah have become involved in some altercation for which both are held culpable in chapter five. Um, Assyria enters into Hosea's picture for the first time, not as a threat to invade, but as temptation for Israel to court. So we have other nations coming in, just like with Solomon, bringing brides and brides and brides into his life from other nations, polluting, diluting the Jewish culture, bringing with them their gods. We have that same thing happen here with Assyria. It's not that they're going to invade, but... Israel's trying to make friends, buddy-buddy, right? So we're having trouble with Judah, the southern half. So the northern half needs some friends. Well, Assyria enters the picture. So does Egypt. And Israel sings a song of return to God, with which he painfully rejects in chapter 6. It's that, that um, feeble penitent song. And what I think is most important, finally is that the poignancy of a wounded lover is so clearly developed in chapter 3. That's what we did the past two weeks. And then it's softly echoed now. And it becomes kind of a fight between God's acts of grace against Israel's persistent rebellion. And so that's, that's the bipolar feel that you see here. Is God is constantly trying to be gracious in his act, at the same time be just against Israel's consistent, persistent rebellion. 
But how do you marry these two things together? Well, we want to say, well, God, have grace on us. Have mercy when we continually run away. Consistently and persistently. It's not as if we're just simply ignoring, but we're making effort to run away from him. So how do we resolve these two things? Because if we want to shout out, God, be gracious, God, be merciful to us, while we continue in sin, we are not of him. First John, we see the light. Those who are in the light are his. Those who are not in the light are not. So we have no right to call out for graciousness. We have no right to call out for mercy. And we consistently and persistently run from him in rebellion. And so what we see is the contrast then of his loving kindness, his desire to restore in chapter 1 through 3, the story of Hosea and Gomer. We see that, but we have to butt that up against this middle section of all these crimes, this fresh evidence of the politics just running amok. How do we, how do we put those together? How do we finally, ultimately restore that relationship? If you look at your notes, you have D, the cult is ripe for destruction. Um, You see E, the calling is unfulfilled. It continues on similarly in Hosea's messages part 2 and A. So we look at a contrast of Ephraim, which is Israel, uh, the, the northern kingdom, and Judah now and what they were. We have this kind of contrast back and forth. Jacob, Israel, then and now. Ephraim, C then and now. D, Israel and Yahweh, their future. So if you have your Bibles, open up to chapter 14. Let's spend the rest of our time there. So D, Israel and Yahweh, their future. Repentance and restoration. Number one, Israel's call to return. Let's read chapter 14, 1 through 3. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Syria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands, and you the orphan finds mercy. Israel's call to return. First we see um, multiple times return. Count in chapter 14, just make a note on your paper to go back and count how many times he says return. How many times Yahweh says, return to me? It's a good movie, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's a chick flick, sorry. Uh, it's, got, it's got Mulder, David Duchovny in it, so I'm a big fan of that one. Return to me. It's good. It's a good movie. God says, return to me. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. What are we supposed to do with that? Why does he want them to return? After consistent, persistent rebellion, why in the world is, does he even think that they're going to return? He's talked about wooing them in the wilderness. We see that 
that beautiful imagery of, of seducing and alluring and, and, and bringing love into this, this prostitute's life, this, this woman who has run away, this wife who is living in wanton sin. We've seen that already. Why, again, does he call out, return to me? It's that conflict of God's graciousness and mercy against consistent rebellion. God is gracious. He is a covenant keeper. He is steadfast love. He is righteousness. He is compassion. He is justice. He is mercy. And because of that, he brings it to the table, even when the covenant has been broken. Even when in that same covenant, he has to bring in the stupid decisions, the stupid alliances that they have made, the stupid treaties that they've made, and he brings them into his own covenant, not as an amending, but as a binding together of two. So even in this, we see, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of what? Because of your iniquity. Because of your iniquity, you have stumbled. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, that we, and we will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands, for in you the orphan finds mercy. So what's interesting in, chapter, in, in verse 2 of chapter 14, you see a little bit of callback to some of the things that Hosea has, has proclaimed against Israel as things that they're doing wrong, trusting in their military might too much. So Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. You see the returning of a promiscuous wife. Return to the Lord your God. Take with you words and return to the Lord. So in that adultery and infidelity, then we see the actual sin being removed. When he says, take away all iniquity, accept what is good. So you see a repeat of what has already happened in Hosea, dropping down into um, verse 3, the last line, in you the orphan finds mercy. And God was supposed to have no compassion, right? And they're not my people. So we see again the reversal of the names. We see the reversal of Jezreel with Assyria shall not save us and we will not ride on horses. We see the reversal of not my people in the orphan who will become family. And we see the reversal of low, um, I'm sorry, low ruhamah, no compassion, and finds mercy. Hosea does a fantastic job of tying in all this stuff together. It is a beautiful work when you can sit down and look at the entire thing, uh, which I, I wish I could, I could convey to you, and I just simply cannot uh, in a time or even in my personal ability. It's just a wondrous thing to, to sit there and look at this text and see how, how uh, Hosea just brings everything together ties in the beginning to the end. We're going to see some more of that even in chapter 14. But we've seen the complete reversal. And so now we, we run into verse 4 with a call to our God. Well, in verse 3, they're saying that we will no more say our God to what? To the work of our hands. So we, us, in Renovation Church, we can say our God to what we make, right? So I can make, I can make art, I can make a, I can whatever your guys' hobbies are. I can kill a deer. Um, 
I, I can do awesome things, right? And I can say, this is my God. I am, I am good at this. This is what I worship. But what's interesting, I can't kill a deer. I, I couldn't. I was going to be a vet, and I was going to have other people put them to sleep. I would just do the surgery and stuff. Um, <laughs> so we can say our God to the things that we make, right? I mean, we absolutely have that ability. I make a little golden calf. You are my God. Will that golden calf ever be able to say, my people, to me? But anything that I ever make, no matter how lavish, no matter how extravagant, no, how, no matter how much the things that God provides I use to make an idol, will it ever be able to say to me, my people? So what does God say back? Yahweh's loving response. Verse 4 through 8. Let's read that together. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. And his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols. It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. So as I was studying for this, I found myself in an awkward position. It is very easy for me to understand um, at least the concept or the imagery of Christ and the church, his bride, because I'm a man, Okay. <laughs> Um, it's very easy for me to understand Song of Solomon being a picture of Christ's love for the church and the imagery that they use for the church, the, the, the bride, because I'm a man, all right? As I'm reading this, I say, I, I see he shall blossom like the lily. And it got a little awkward um, giving what some of these words mean. Um, with that, let me say that this is talking about the bride, Israel, okay? However, when they refer to Israel, it does get referred to in the masculine. So that's why it says he. Now, you'll see some of my awkwardness in a minute as I explain some of these. If you keep in mind, it's a he. You won't if you realize that this is a she, okay? Um, so first, let's look at some of the words that God uses in their healing. We see healing, their apostasy. Not only are they going to return, but I'm going to be the one that removes their iniquity. I'm going to be the one that removes their, uh, their rebellion. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. So this Yahweh, who is gracious and merciful, continues to be so and turns his anger away. Why is he able to do that? Because one day we will have Christ. He will be the propitiation. He will be the sponge, the wrath absorber. That anger will be put on Christ. So it is not just a turning away and setting down of his anger. It is pleasing God to crush him later. We need to understand that our sin still has consequences. Even when God is gracious and merciful to us, our bridegroom paid for that. So some of the words, chapter 5, or I'm sorry, I keep saying chapter, verse 5, I will be like the dew to Israel. So Yahweh is saying, I will be like the dew to Israel. Dew describes a refreshment of God's love. The dew brings about refreshment now we begin to talk about Israel. 
I'm going to say she just because it's less awkward. She, she I, I, I feel for ladies trying to, <laughs> it would be hard for me, I, I, I think, as a, as a lady to look at the bride, the church, with the loving graphicness that Yahweh has for his bride, okay? Um, now, I can, I can respect it in the relationship, but it, it's just so intense, and it, it's a different gender for me, so it's awkward. So we look at Blossom. She shall blossom like the lily. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to change scripture. I'm trying to make this easier for me to interpret. She shall blossom. Blossom describes a bountiful prosperity. Uh, it results from his restored favor with Yahweh, her restored favor with Yahweh. Now in song, we, we see a lot of parallels in, in, in word usage here between this and Song of Solomon. So in Song of Solomon uh, 6.11, uh, 7.13, multiple times, the verb occurs, blossom, in the context of an erotic, verdant setting for love. So we're talking about intimacy. We're talking about a deep love, desire, and passion for the other. So this blossoming is a bountiful prosperity. So we're moving from drought, we're moving from the false fertility of the bales to a bountiful provision because of God's love and his restored favor. Move on to see shall blossom like the lily. The lily, speaking of uh, the bride's beauty, it means other stuff in Song of Solomon. Um, <laughs> it says next that he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. Take root or, or strike root reverses the judgment of barrenness. We're talking again about moving from the false fertility to real provision. And then we see Lebanon. Lebanon repeats three times. Lebanon is designed in this passage to draw a stark contrast between the barrenness, um, the wasteland almost type look of Palestine versus the, the fruitfulness, um, the enormous cedars of Lebanon, uh, just this lush place. So we see a contrast between barrenness and a lush overgrowth. So she'll take root like the trees of Lebanon. These cedars that we saw from Solomon going into Lebanon and getting cedars, there are enormous trees. And they take deep root. So if Israel is going to take deep root, like in Lebanon, that means they're going to be firmly placed. See next the olive, right, in verse 6. Beauty shall be like the olive. The olive is cherished for its oil and bountiful foliage. Uh, it's used for tons of medicinal and cosmetic purposes. We see then the fragrance, like what? Like Lebanon. The scent of a woman, <laughs> right, can drive you crazy. It's the same thing. It's just such a passionate, desiring, wanting for, longing for. Verse 7, you shall return again, right, and dwell beneath my shadow. The shadow is an intimately protective relationship. So dwelling within there, we see the dwell before that. It's, in this return, it's a, it's a resting in, right, finding comfort and solace. Resting in that. Now, it has theological significance, returning, right? Like in verse 1, we talked about it last week. But here we're, we're seeing a return to rest. So it's got a purpose of relaxing, of cherishing, of, uh, of finding comfort and peace. Then we see the grain. You see, the, they shall flourish like the grain. The one who provides, uh, a flourish literally means... Uh, to bring to life. So they shall flourish. They shall be brought to life. 
like the grain. Now, why is that important? Could Baal bring anything to life? Next thing we see is like the vine. They shall blossom like the vine, an imagery of spring. It's part of a sight of an erotic encounter in, in Song of Solomon. It says, their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So wine would, and their fame, we're not talking about Hollywood, okay? Not that type of fame. We're talking about their reputation. So Israel's restored reputation will be like a fine vintage wine of Lebanon. And so what's cool about this entire section, 4 through 7, for me, I just really like, is how he's interwoven recollections of Israel's past relationship to God earlier in 1 through 3. Renunciation of the fertility powers of Baal. He's taking all these little shots at Baal, right? And finally, he ends with recitations of love lyrics to them. And he loves them freely. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. So we see earlier recollections of what they've done. We saw the names. We saw the, the Baals. We saw all of that. We see a renunciation of Baal. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. And we see then these love lyrics that are so passionate and beautiful. And it's the same language that recalls the love of chapter 2, 19-23. Where he says, I will allure her, I will seduce her, I'll love her deeply. It's the same thing that we saw earlier. That beautiful reconciliation. And so finally we find ourselves in an E, a concluding admonition, walking and stumbling. Chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. I was like Kohelet showed up again, didn't he? <laughs> Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. few things I really want you to tie in right here, okay? If you can't see this yet, I, I hope you write this down and you, and you try to reflect on it. What is important about whoever is wise? Because they've been making foolish decisions all on their own. What is important about let him understand these things? They've been making foolish decisions on their own and they've not known God. They forgot me. Whoever is discerning, what's important about that? It's a parallel to earlier. If you are wise, you will be discerning. They've been making foolish decisions on their own. Let him know them. What's important about that? Parallel back to the line above it. They've been making foolish decisions on their own, and they have forgotten, not known God. So what do we do with that? For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Go to verse 1. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. See how he ties it together right there? So awesome. All right. The transgressors stumble in them. What do they stumble in? We see kind of a, a connection here between um, iniquity causing them to stumble. Because of your iniquity, you have stumbled. But we see later, then, for the ways of the Lord are right, but transgressors stumble in them. Does that mean that the ways of the Lord, which are right, are iniquity, and that's why they stumble? 
No, like, you be careful that we don't tie those two things. A plus B plus C, or A plus B equals C, so C must equal, right? No, not quite. <laughs> we stumble because of our iniquity. Our sin is what causes us to stumble. And it's not that the ways of the Lord are iniquity and then we stumble in those. It's that we stumble over ourselves and we can't trust in God to be our righteousness. We cannot trust in Him to allow us to give, to give us the power to be upright in Him. So we find ourselves with a contrast between walking in light and walking in darkness, to use the New Testament terms. We stay upright in the light. There's nothing to hide from. Everything is exposed. In the darkness, there is sin, secrecy, and deception. So as we try to wrap this up and look at the major themes of Hosea, and my ultimate goal is to tie this into uh, into Christ, and, and what do we do with this? You need to be able to identify with Gomer, Israel. You need to be able to do that. And with that, what do we do? Because if we're there, then ultimately we find that this call here in chapter 14 is for us. What do we do with this to wrap up? Look at the application of Hosea. First thing I want you to see is a return to Yahweh. He calls for us to return to him. He calls for us to return to him. If we don't start with returning to God, we will have nothing. There's no joy, no provision. Everything will be stripped away. Here's a problem, though. We can't return if we don't realize that we're gone. We cannot return to God if we don't realize that we're far from him. So all through this series, I've had to say, God, how am I wandering from you? How am I far from you? What do I need to return from? Where am I beginning at? So we return to Christ. We return to Yahweh. The second thing is to rest in his love. Rest in his love. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has been turned from them. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. So we see the pain of our lover in verse 8. After he sang this beautiful song to them, he says, O Ephraim, O Israel, what have I to do with idols? I have no, nothing to do with what you are involved in. It is I who answer and look after you, not these things that you have created. It is I who answer you, I who look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. Now this is, this is an intense section for Yahweh himself to call himself a created thing. Now, why would he do this? This is the only time in scripture we see him calling himself like a, a tree, right? The only time that's anywhere cl- close to that is Christ saying, I am the vine, okay? And we abide in him. So this is the only time we see this in scripture. Why would he, why would he say something like this? This is like borrowing the enemy's sword to, to put the final stab in, right? So Baal is a created being, a created thing. It's, it's meant to represent fertility. It's meant to represent provision, grain, food, that type of thing. So now Yahweh is saying, no, that, that's me. I'm the one who does that. And he claims 
that position from Baal. It says, from me comes your fruit, everything that you need. So when we rest in his love, we hear the, the sorrow and call in his, in his returning, uh, in, in his call for us to return. We hear that from him in verse 8, and we understand um, the passion that he has from us. So finally, number three, remain in, his righteous, remain in righteousness. The proverb at the end, verse 9, For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. If we want to stumble no more because of our iniquity, we remain in righteousness. Remain in righteousness, and it's not anything that we do, anything that we can bring. It's not any of that. It's his. It's his righteousness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. And as we return to him, rest in him, we understand that uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still far from him, he called us his own. And we just remain in his righteousness, abide in him. As we wrap us up, we're going to sing another song. Um, and as the band comes up and gets ready, um, why don't you guys go ahead and head on up. Um, we need to deal with the issue of where are we now, right? So we, again, we cannot look to the future hope of restoration without presently dealing with the sin of where we are, right? I'm going to move to a prayer of confession. I'm going to pray for you guys uh, first, for us, for me. Um, and then I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to do a response, prayer of confession. Uh, you'll need to read the underlined part on the screen. Uh, and then we'll, we'll sing our final song. So let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for who you are, Father, that because of your character, um, we, can, we can worship you. Father, you are perfect. You are holy. And, Father, because of what you have done, we can be restored to you. Because of what you and your Son have done, Father, we in the Spirit can return to you. Father, I thank you for all that you've done for us. And Father, as we look at this passage, as we look at this book, and this, this call from Hosea to return to you, Father, let us understand uh, that we need to first open our eyes, look around, and see where we are now. Where are we returning from? And Father, while we may be in a, in a good season with you, we also may be in a bad season with you, Father. We are far from you. Father, we desire to draw near to you again. Father, now we confess our sins. We acknowledge that we have offended you, a holy God, by acting in a way that is not consistent with your character. Father, taking the gifts that you have given us and using them for idols, both to craft them and to worship them, Father, to find significance and dependence and provision in them rather than you, the giver of all good things. Father, bring to our hearts and our minds the sin in our lives. As we identify the idols that we have, Father, let us not just lay them aside, but completely turn our backs to them. And Father, repent and run to you.
as we'll stand and pray with me together. Lord, we confess that in the ups and downs of life, it's tempting to throw our confidence in everything but you. We know you have unlimited resources of glory and power. Strengthen your people with your spirit. Make your home in our hearts as we trust in you. May we grow deep roots in the rich soil of your love. May we understand with all the saints how wide, how long, how high, and how deep your love is. Read with me. May we ever know and experience more of your love as you make us complete with the life, the power of God.